Welcome again to Grace Church of Philly. We welcome those who are here and those who are listening around the world. Many brothers and sisters in Christ are joining us this morning, and we're glad that you can. Take your Bible, please, and look with me in Hebrews chapter 6. Be looking at verses 11 through 20 this morning. Hebrews chapter 6. I want to talk this morning about living with hope in a world of despair, that we can live with a hope that is sure and steadfast. Listen to God's word, Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 11. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. As you may know, Hebrews is a book about the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. It is a book about genuine faith, about perseverance, about hope. It is a book that, is, that tells us that hope is undergirded by genuine faith. And this genuine faith will produce a perseverance, not only in obedience, but in loyalty and love to Jesus Christ. If there is no hope, that is, if we don't have a guaranteed future that is attractive to us, then we have no basis to keep on believing. We have no basis to keep on persevering. And what our text offers us this morning is a glorious hope, one that is sure and steadfast. I remember back in 2008 during the mortgage crisis that hit our country, 
the Wall Street financial firm Lehman Brothers collapsed, a 150-year-old firm. And following that collapse, I read an article in the New York Post which talked about a man who was standing outside of the Lehman Brothers building, and he was simply saying, it's all gone. It's all gone. And he was referring to the $8 million that he had lost overnight in the collapse of Lehman Brothers. When asked if he thought he would recover any of his loss, his answer simply was, no, it's all gone. For him, that hope was gone. We know we live in a world that is uncertain. It's volatile. The economy, employment, health, risks that people face, political instability, media unreliability. We live in a world where some are saying that 2021 will be even worse than 2020. I'm glad as a Christian I don't need to live like that. I don't need to think like that because in Christ we have a hope that is sure and steadfast. If in this life you stake your hope on anything that is subject to change, then you are a candidate for despair. And despair simply is the opposite of hope. Someone has said that most suicidal people do not want to end their life. They want to end their pain. I read that in Japan in October of this year, the number of suicides in one month in Japan was 2,153. That was more deaths than all of the deaths from COVID in the entire year up to that point. We live in a world of despair. Someone reminded me once that one thing that all humanity shares in common is that we suffer. But there's one thing, there's something that is worse than suffering. And that is suffering without any hope, suffering in despair. Robert Buchanan quotes Dr. Armen Nicoli. He's a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. And he's the editor of the uh, Harvard Guide to Psychiatry. And in his writings, he points to the world of despair that we live in and the root of that, he says, is what he calls depleted spiritual resources. I quote, historians and social scientists tell us that we have fewer spiritual resources to draw from than at any time in Western cultural history. Some say that our culture has forsaken its spiritual roots, that we live in an overtly secular society 
without even the pretense of spiritual values. Many young people today feel that their culture fails to provide answers to questions of purpose and meaning and destiny. We fail, they feel, to provide some reason for hope. The consequence is that we are now in a cultural crisis and living in what is being called the age of despair. Well, thankfully, if you are in Jesus Christ, in union with him, believing in him, looking to him, resting in him, delighting in him, then there is never a depletion of spiritual resources. There is never a diminishing of hope. Though humanly speaking, we live in a time of great despair in the midst of a pandemic, the rise of unemployment, health crisis, etc., etc., Jesus Christ is alive. And as we sang, his amazing love is unchanging. His amazing grace is unchanging. His faithfulness is unchanging. And if your hope is in anything that is subject to change, if your hope is in anything that can fail you tomorrow, then you are, again, a candidate for despair. I'm going to follow Steve's lead this morning and give a long introduction. When we talk about hope, I think it's important to distinguish uh, the difference between what I'll call common hope and biblical hope. When I think of common hope, which we all talk about, we hope for something, a common hope has these characteristics. We're normally thinking of something that is future, something that is desirable, and something that is possible. That is why we hope. That is, I hope for a long and happy marriage. I hope for a successful career and advancement in my career. I hope for healthy and happy children. I hope, some would say, to find someone who will love me and with whom I can spend my life. I hope for an investment portfolio that grows. I hope for a healthy and successful ministry as a pastor. I hope, if you're a gambler, and you shouldn't be, but I hope I'll win the lottery. Common hope is a good thing. It's future. It's desirable. It's possible, and we should all desire and plan and work by God's grace for a future in this world that is desirable and possible. But if we don't recognize that common hope is not biblical hope, because biblical hope is future, And biblical hope is desirable, but biblical hope is not simply possible. Biblical hope is certain. 
And if we mistake our common hopes for a biblical hope, then we often end up in despair. Because as much as we may desire it, a hope for a long and happy marriage is not always certain. And a hope for a successful career and advancement in that career is not certain. A hope for healthy and happy children is not guaranteed. The hope that you will find someone who will love you and with whom you can spend your life, it's not certain. Your investment portfolio is not certain. Your personal health and well-being in this world is not certain. And certainly winning the lottery is far from certain. When you take a biblical understanding of hope, which unfortunately and tragically, often this is what health, wealth, and prosperity preachers do. They make common hope, the hope for a better life in this world, a perfect life in this world. They make it a biblical hope. Sometimes they try to uh, uh, attach it to the promises of God. But when you do that, whether you are a Christian who is wrongly believing the promises of God, or whether you're not a Christian who is staking your life on common hope, you are a candidate for despair. And that is why we live in a world of despair. One of my saddest moments as a pastor was sitting with the parents and the husband of a beautiful young Christian girl who had just given birth to a beautiful child, married to a seminary student, training to be a pastor, who had taken a shotgun, put it to her stomach, and pulled the trigger. For her, for some reason, even as a believer, hope was gone. And despair captured her life. Despair is real because misplaced hope is real. In this age of despair, only the gospel cries out, there is an unfailing and unchanging hope. Jesus has risen from the dead. He is alive and he is alive forevermore. And this is the heart of our text today. In some sense, it's the heart of the book of Hebrews. That it is, it is in Christ alone that we have this hope a hope which our text describes as future and desirable. And it's also certain, but we'll look at that later. But yes, there is something that God has planned in the future for believers. It is an objective reality. It exists outside of us, apart from us. It exists because God has created it. God sustains it. And God ensures that it will never fail. 
Our writer calls it the hope that is set before us. And if you know the book of Hebrews in chapter 6, you know that the writer has just been talking about having a genuine faith because the people to whom he is writing, many of them have uh, thought about falling away from Christianity and going back into the safety and political protection of, of Judaism. And uh, the writer is saying that genuine faith is a persevering faith. That if you truly believe in Jesus, you keep on believing in Jesus. And the evidence of that is you persevere in obedience. You persevere in fruitfulness. But if you say that you're a Christian, but you deny Jesus, and the fruit of your life is nothing more than thorns and thistles that are only worthy for the fire, he says, that is not genuine. But he says, I have, I have better confidence of you, that your faith is real, that your hope, that God saves finally all of those who are truly in Jesus, that your hope is real. God has something wonderful for every believer. It is an objective reality. It is future. It is desirable. Earlier in the book, he described it in chapter 2, verse 3, as this great, salvation that God has given us? How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? If we don't give our attention to all that we have in Jesus Christ who died, who rose again, who ascended, who is seated at the right hand of the Father, who is coming again, if we don't give our attention to this, we will fall into despair, living in a world of despair. It's an objective reality, this great salvation. Nothing can touch it. In chapter 4 of the book of Hebrews, verses 9 and 10, he described this hope as a final rest. He tells us that in our union with Christ today, we have begun to taste what he calls rest. And if you know the Old Testament, that's language that comes from the promises that God gave to his Old Testament people that he would bring them into a land, a land that would be their inheritance and a land in which they would rest. If they just remained faithful to God and loyal to God, he would fight their battles. He would make their crops grow. They would worship. They would rest. And this is really what we all long for. We long to rest. We don't want to fight within our soul. We don't want to fight with people. We don't want to fight. We want to rest. And in Jesus, we begin to taste that rest. But we long for, we hope for a day when we will finally rest, when every battle of this life is over. There remains, he says, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. It is an objective reality that God has created. He ensures, he secures. In the chapter that we read, the verses that we read, the objective reality, 
is centered in Jesus Christ. He says it's a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, that image of that holy of holies where the presence of God is, into that inner place behind the curtain where where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. And he's a priest, not like Levitical priests who lived and died and their service ended, but he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek, a priest of a superior priesthood that existed before the Levites ever existed. He is a priest who lives and serves forever. This is our hope. It is centered in the person of Jesus Christ who suffered, who died, and who right now sits as our high priest, sustaining our hope and guaranteeing our hope. This desirable and future hope encourages us to live not consumed by the present, by the present world of despair, but this desirable and future hope motivates us to look at things not as they are, but as they will be in Jesus Christ. I love John's words in 1 John chapter 3. When he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us? That we should be called children of God, and so we are? The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. This is our hope. Right now we're God's children and one day we will see Jesus, this one who stood in your place, who bore your sin, who died your death because he loved you so much. This one who has created and prepared a future world for you, you will see him and be like him. And everyone who has this hope in him keeps on purifying himself even as he is pure. This future and desirable hope is an objective reality, but he also indicates it's a subjective experience. When he says in verse 11, we desire that each one of you show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope. It's not only something that is out there in the future waiting for me, guaranteed by God. But it's something that stabilizes my heart, that gives me peace. You have the full assurance of hope. This is how you live in a world of despair, because you have a steadfast and sure hope and objective reality that you believe 
biblical hope is future and desirable. And he tells us that it is experienced through faith and patience. Don't be sluggish, he said, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Faith is simply continuing to believe the word of God. I think more than ever in the age in which we live, we will continue to see growing attacks on the reliability of Scripture. Because if someone can put a doubt in your mind about the reliability of God's Word, that it is accurate, it is historically reliable, that it actually came from God, that it's correct, you will see more and more the attack upon the Word of God. And yet we know that the Bible has more evidence for its reality, for its historicity, for its accuracy than any other human ancient document we have on earth. It's amazing how we have over 6,000 copies of manuscripts with little variations, but not one variation that affects anything about the teaching of man, of God, of Christ, of sin. One apologist put it this way. He said, in real terms, the New Testament is easily the best attested ancient writing in terms of the sheer number of documents, the time span between the events, and the documents and the variety of documents available to sustain or to contradict it. There is nothing in ancient manuscript evidence to match such textual availability and integrity. So he's saying there is scientific evidence for you to believe the Bible. But if, you have, if you're a believer in Christ, you don't even need that. You know that one day you heard the Word of God, the truth about Jesus Christ, the offer of salvation in Jesus Christ, and you believed that Word, and something happened within you that transformed your life. You know that Jesus is alive because He lives in you. And if Jesus is alive, then we accept his authentication of Scripture, that he gave the Old Testament his stamp of approval as the Word of God, and he gave the New Testament his stamp of approval when he told his apostles that his Spirit would come and teach them everything that they need to know. We live by faith. Our hope is grounded in our faith in the Word of God. But we not only live through faith, we live through patience. Patience endures all of the obstacles that you 
come across on the path to that final hope. And the world, life is full of many, but patience takes us through them. It doesn't take us outside of them. Patience is not passivity. Patience is not powerlessness. Patience is not the inability to act. But biblical patience is the full engagement of life with a view to the hope that is set before you. If I am patient, I'm not passively waiting. If I'm patient, then I am living life fully in the midst of a world of despair, looking to the hope that God has set before me. Someone has said that patience, biblical patience, means to enter actively into the thick of life and to fully bear the suffering within you and around you. Patience is the capacity to see and to hear and to touch and to taste and to smell as fully as possible both the inner and the outer events of, of our lives. It is to enter our lives with open eyes and ears and hands so that we really know what is happening, but we endure, we go on. We live with hope in faith and patience. We believe and we wait. Is it worth waiting? The writer of Hebrews says, let me give you, remind you of a familiar example of someone who had hope. And because of that hope, he lived in faith and he lived with patience. And he tells us, as Aline read this morning about Abraham, 75 years old, and he is promised that he will have a son. And that through that son, he would have many descendants and many kings and many nations, but especially through that son, one would come who would bring blessing to all of the nations of the earth. He was 75 years old. His, old, his wife was old, and when she heard it, she laughed. But Abraham believed, and he waited 25 years till he was nearly, as Romans says, 100 years old. Imagine having the promise of God, that hope, and every year when he's 76 and 77 and 81 and 92 and 93, every year that passes, humanly speaking, is a diminishing of that hope. It is less likely that a 99-year-old man is going to father a child and his aged wife will give birth to a child, even less likely than at 75. But I read again what was read in Romans 4 and verse 18. In hope, he believed against hope. 
that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body. I mean, what happens when you're 75 years old? Your body's not getting stronger. As much as you try to think that way and act that way, the likelihood is it's not getting stronger. You know, when I was 50 years old, I wanted to be able to bench press 300 pounds. So I called my wife and daughter down to the basement, and I bench pressed 300 pounds. When I was 60 years old, I wanted to bench press 300 pounds. And I went to the gym, and I bench-pressed 300 pounds. In June of this year, I will be 70 years old. I want to bench-press 300 pounds. I will work to get there, but I don't have strong hope. Because I realize that each year, the body gets a little bit weaker. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his shriveling, aging body. Which was as good as dead, the writer Paul says, since he was about a hundred years old. Or he did not weaken in faith when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith, and he gave, as he gave glory to God fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. I love that verse. That's faith. God says, I've given you a hope in Christ that where he is, you will be. That there is a world of perfect rest, complete salvation waiting for you. Believe it. Live with faith and patience. And deep down inside, this is what we all long for. This is what our, our hearts, our bodies cry out for. Paul tells us that all of creation is groaning for that future hope. That all of creation is in agonizing pain because of the curse of sin in this world. And creation itself is groaning for that day when that hope is fulfilled, when the world is made perfect once again. And then he says in Romans 8, and we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit we 
groan inwardly. We have this agonizing pain waiting for that full adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And then he says, for in this hope, we were saved. Now hope, is see, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. None of us know what life holds for us in 2021. But we know what is beyond that. We know that there's a hope there. And we may plow through and suffer through and agonize through and cry through much of 2021, but this does not change. That we have a hope that is steadfast and secure that brings full assurance. And he says if the word of God, if God's voice, his promise isn't enough, God went to an extra measure. He took an oath. He not only gave his word, he swore upon himself. He gave you a double guarantee. And then he tells us that this biblical hope is seized by, it is grasped by those who are desperate. If I could pray anything for you this year, I would pray. Bring, God bring you to a place of desperation in your life where you will flee as he says in verse 18 we who have fled for refuge that you will flee the idolatries of your life the false promises of your life those hopes of your life that you are looking Two, for joy and security, that you will flee from that and run to Jesus Christ. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. One of the great movies of all time is for me anyway, is the powerful picture, The Perfect Storm, which took place in October of 1991. It was called The Perfect Storm by the National Weather Service. And those of you who watched it remember the sinking of that sword-fishing boat, Andre Gale, when all of the elements came together to create something that you could not survive. And if I could pray for you, if necessary, if it drives you to Jesus Christ, if it causes you to flee to Jesus Christ, is that God would bring such struggles and disappointments 
that would create a perfect storm that you would run from, that you would say, there is no way I don't have the resources, the skill, the ability to make it through this. I need Jesus Christ. There are so many entrepreneurs who envisioned I mean, they had the business plan. They had the resources. They executed perfectly. And God creates a perfect storm because their business had become their, their hope. And in that success, they found security and peace and happiness and God wants them to have something more than just a common hope that is subject to failure. Often, he allows our hopes to be dashed so that we might settle on a hope that is not only future and not only desirable, but it is sure and steadfast. It is certain in Jesus Christ. And when you are fixed on that hope, when you have that anchor for your soul in the hope of Jesus Christ, then even if you do have your common hopes fulfilled, if your true hope is in Christ, then the enjoyment of common hope will never become an idolatry in your life. It'll always be in its proper place. And if Jesus Christ is your certain hope, when your common hopes fail, when you find yourself heading toward despair, you will realize that you have a hope, a better hope, that will never fail you. I close with these words this morning, my feeble attempt to summarize what I think about as I'm preparing a message. I call it hope in a world of despair. Agitated souls, a world of despair. Disappearing dreams, life is not fair. Heart palpitations, grasping for air. Promises broken. Why should I care? Redemption accomplished, no more despair. A future secured, nothing compares. Peace in the heart, breathing fresh air. Reliable words, Jesus does care. The comfort of Christ, no more despair. The coming of Christ, nothing compares. The presence of Christ, breathing fresh air. The promise of Christ, Jesus does care. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for our hope in Jesus Christ that is steadfast and secure. 
Help us to live with faith and with patience. All by your grace, we look to you. In Jesus' name, amen.